Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 119, recorded on May 28, 2019. Today we're going to talk about uh, TransferWise millionaires, about the GDPR anniversary, about Ireland's investigation into Google, and much more. We have also prepared a pre-recorded interview with Roland Pater, uh, the founder and CEO of Nori Health. That's part of our Digital Health Month, powered by Bayer G4A. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today, as usual, by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is it going? Hi, Andre. It's going really well. Uh, great to see you. Yeah, same here. Now that we have a bigger time difference than usual, we are recording much later than we used to. It's already 9 p.m. in Amsterdam. It's been a pretty long day, but it's still pretty early in the day for you, right? Yeah, I'm actually recording this podcast in my childhood bedroom here in Arizona. I'm in the U.S. for a little while. That's where the, the time difference comes in. Yeah, for me, it's been the really long day today. So I went to two demo days of uh, two different accelerators uh, here in Amsterdam. It's a really interesting coincidence that both of them actually scheduled their demo days on the same day. And it also happened to be the day of a very big countrywide public transportation strike here in the Netherlands. So basically, nobody was able to take a tram or a metro or a train between cities. So it was uh, really hard. And I think a lot of people couldn't even make it to the demo days. But anyway, a huge uh, shout out to both uh, Startup Bootcamp and uh, Techstars uh, for their uh, programs uh, here in Amsterdam. I was really impressed by the quality of uh, startups and I am really looking forward to hearing more about uh, what uh, comes out of it. Excellent. Well, and congratulations for your persistence in making both of those events despite no public transport. Really, really impressive. Yeah, I was quite lucky that, that I could uh, hitch a ride in the morning to one of the events and then to take a shuttle bus uh, uh, back to Amsterdam. But generally, it's pretty interesting to look around the city today because there are no buses, there are no trams and uh, only uh, uh, cyclists and uh, people walking. It's very, it's very unusual. It's not something that you see a lot of. Anyway, let's talk about the news from the past week. It was a really interesting week once again. And once again, I'm sorry, Natalie, I am stealing your biggest deal of the week thing because I was going to talk about TransferWise and the new millionaires that it has just minted. So it has, first of all, TransferWise has become the highest valued fintech startup in Europe officially uh, with a valuation of 3.5 billion US dollars. And the latest evaluation is a result of this uh, secondary funding round happened uh, last week in which 292 million US dollars worth of the company's equity changed hands. And just uh, for a quick comparison, just to put things in context, so TransferWise is now worth 3.5 billion. Uh, the next probably comes Oak North, uh, which is worth $2.8 billion. And uh, then there is Revolut, uh, which is uh, worth $1.7 billion. 
So the deal we're talking about was not actually a funding round in the usual sense because TransferWise itself did not get any fresh capital on its balance sheet, but it rather gave employees and early investors an opportunity to sell uh, their stock. And this stock was uh, purchased by a European private equity group called Vitruvian Partners and then uh, the US-based investment firms like Lone Pine Capital and Lead Edge Capital, as well as Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, Bailey Gifford and uh, funds managed by BlackRock. Talking to the CNBC, TransferWise founder and CEO Tavit Hinrichus uh, said the following, the quote begins, We have been a profitable company for the past two years. We have a significant amount of cash sitting on our balance sheet. The company does not need any cash. The quote ends. This is something that you don't uh, hear from a startup founder every day. And he also said uh, that he believes that TransferWise will eventually become a public company but it has no plans to file for an IPO in the next couple of years at least. And the latest numbers that we have on TransferWise's financial performance, they look pretty good. In the fiscal year that ended in March 2018, the company booked a net profit of £6.2 million with an annual revenue of £117 million, which almost doubled year on year. We also recorded an interview with Hendrikos last year at Slush, so if you're interested, you can go back and listen to it in our episode number 104 that aired in February. And one of the questions uh, that I asked uh, uh, Tavet uh, back then uh, was uh, whether there was a transfer-wise mafia, that, that is, the company's alumni uh, that would leave the company and found their own startups. And uh, then uh, Tavet said that, yes, there were a few people and that the company was encouraging it. And uh, now it turns out that there have been more than 10 of the members of this so-called mafia, or as they call themselves, the wisers. And uh, most probably we can expect uh, more to come. So our friends and colleagues at Sifted uh, have estimated uh, that the deal we're talking about uh, minted 33 new millionaires and the total amount uh, of uh, employees or investors with the six figures holding in TransferWise is now more than 150. So TransferWise also told Sifted that uh, quote-unquote many hundreds of employees, former employees and early backers sold their stock in the funding deal. I'm going to read more from that piece just to give a couple of interesting morsels. Uh, first one is, the quote begins, the company's 1,600 employees collectively have around 2 million vested options, according to last year's company filings, which at the last valuation would be worth $250,000 per employee on average. And the next one is about encouragement. Uh, the quote begins, Head of recruitment at TransferWise, Ben Craig, said that the company actively encourages employees to channel the quote-unquote entrepreneurial mindset into other projects through initiatives like a six-week paid sabbatical after four years with the company, even though this can lead to wisers leaving TransferWise to focus on starting their new businesses. Quote ends. So congratulations to TransferWise and, uh, of course, uh, kudos for fuel in the entrepreneurial ecosystem uh, here in Europe uh, with both uh, talent and money. So this is really great news for TransferWise, and they really produce a product that helps a lot of entrepreneurs and com early stage companies in Europe with financial services. So it's really excellent news, I think, for the ecosystem. 
Yeah, the product is great. Uh, I, I'm a user. I'm a, I'm, pretty, I'm very much uh, satisfited with it. it definitely, their borderless account has definitely made doing business in multiple currencies in Europe feasible in a way that previous options didn't really allow. Yeah, absolutely. So, Natalie, what did you want to talk about? Yeah, so last week, all across Europe, people were celebrating the first year anniversary of GDPR. So, Andre, how was your GDPR party? Uh, should I be embarrassed now about not remembering this about this at all? <laughs> well, so all joking aside, GDPR is something that I think really continues to be incredibly misunderstood. And it's always a topic that becomes a source of epic Twitter rants. Many of the times I'm often included in those. But you often see baseless claims about what the impact of GDPR is on the entrepreneurial ecosystem and what its impact is for startups. And sometimes I see examples where people will attribute differences in the dynamism of European tech or the challenges in the startup scene to GDPR. And while some of the impacts of GDPR can't entirely be known yet, it hasn't been enacted that long. But what's clear is that GDPR has had a considerable impact on the responsibilities of companies when it comes to data privacy and protection. So just for a recap, GDPR successfully requires politicians and companies to recognize the value of private data, and it gives the public the opportunity to hold these companies accountable for breaching trust. So since it's been implemented, GDPR has provided incredible insight into who exactly holds our personal data online, what type of data is collected, and what third parties this data is shared with. So one year on, GDPR has been responsible for over 56 million euros in fines, and it's had handled over 94,000 individual complaints have been made and over 200,000 cases have been received by data protection authorities. These cases have been handled by over 500,000 new data protection officers all across Europe and countries have been given considerable avenues to enforce compliance for GDPR's aims. Germany, of course, was notable for being the first country to prosecute and fine company for a data breach under GDPR. And France hit the headlines earlier this year when in January they fined Google 50 million euros for their lack of transparency and consent procedures for advertising under GDPR. France and Google are currently fighting out this fine in the courts, but it's ongoing. But other countries have taken a slightly different approach when it comes to enforcing internet companies. Many of them are less as active as France has been. So some have been critiqued, especially for not doing enough. Last month, Ireland came under fire after an extensive investigation by Politico when they found the country had, until that point, not taken any actions for GDPR enforcement, despite receiving thousands of valid complaints. At the time, Politico reported that regulators in other EU countries, especially Germany, remained skeptical that Ireland would begin to enforce GDPR complaints when they had feared would potentially create the risk of developing a regulatory safe zone in Europe. 
But now we've learned that Ireland's Data Protection Commission has launched a new investigation into Google to determine if the company has breached privacy regulations with regards to online advertising. This follows an announcement that came earlier this month of the opening of 53 other investigations into possible breaches, 11 of which which focus on Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. Other companies included in the Irish investigations are Twitter and LinkedIn. The news will be welcome to many that have suggested that Ireland has become too close to the tech giants that are headquartered there. After one year of GDPR, Ireland has received over 6,000 complaints and over 5,800 valid data security breaches. At the time of political's reporting last month, Ireland's Commissioner for Data Protection waved away the critiques that the country wasn't being strong enough against these internet giants. But just this month, they've announced a new raft of investigations, conveniently right after the political article. So will this new investigation into Google change anything? Well, we'll have to wait and see until July or August when they expect the first results of the initial investigations to be known. But I think it's fair to say that there will be plenty of eyes on Ireland now, and these will be among the most significant tests of GDPR enforcement yet. Ireland expects the final rulings on the outstanding investigations to be concluded by the end of the year, so we'll have to stay tuned. That's interesting. So do we actually understand whether this new investigation has anything to do with the reports that uh, were received uh, by the Irish authorities or is it uh, completely separate? Do you understand? Some of the investigations came through internal procedures, but some of them were in direct response to reporting that was received by individuals or by firms. I don't have in front of me the exact differentiation, but um, it is included in the links that we add in, in our show notes. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and it it is really important to just look at these kind of things with a certain every year or every half a year just to see what is actually happening. It would be interesting to see in general what how other countries are doing. So, is Ireland actually an outlier, or is it actually similar in elsewhere in Europe? So, uh, moving on uh, through our agenda today, let us listen to the interview with uh, Roland Potter, uh, the founder and CEO of Nori Health, a very interesting healthcare startup uh, located here in the Netherlands. Let's listen to it together, and uh, afterwards we will talk about the events that we should expect to happen soon, and uh, our recommendations of different books, stories, podcasts, and whatever else we would like to share. Hello, uh, this is Andre Degler uh, reporting for Tech.eu from the Dutch city of Breukelen, and uh, I'm uh, sitting down uh, today with uh, uh, Roland, uh, the CEO and founder of Nori Health. Uh, hi, Roland. Uh, thanks a lot for taking time to talk today. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So can you start by explaining what Nori Health is and what is it you're doing? Yeah, sure. So um, Nori Health helps um, people with a chronic disease, uh, first and foremost. So we have built a, a chatbot coach or a computer-driven coach that helps people to um, discover and change lifestyle factors that impact their disease. So yeah, that is what we did. We are starting for people with a chronic bowel disease, such as IBD, Crohn's disease, colitis, and irritable bowel syndrome. So it's a very uh, specific specific group of people that are uh, very under-supported, and um, I am part of that group as well, so I know from uh, firsthand what it's like and um, what the needs are, basically. So 
right and uh, what's uh, what sort of uh, how many people are there that uh, suffer from this so what's your market like yeah so um it depends a bit on how you look at it so if you look at ibs um you will see that a lot of people deal with this so there are about 10 to 15 percent of the world population actually deals with it but um of course a lot of people have a very light version so when you look at um a very severe ibs and ibd we look at a group of about 5 million people in europe and also about 5 million in the US. Right. So which uh, markets uh, in terms of geography do you focus on then? Do you focus on Europe and, or the US or both? Yes, we are starting um, here in the Netherlands and uh, in the UK. And um, those two countries, we will be uh, starting pilot programs and launching uh, first. And then after that, we will expand uh, fairly soon to, to um, the rest of Europe and uh, looking outside that scope as well. But um, yeah, we have to see how, how this will go. So you founded Nori Health in 2017? Yes, this December of 2017, so uh, very late. Um, we started uh, December 1st in the Innolabs Accelerator, uh, which is part of the Horizon 2020 program of the European Union. And um, that really helped us to to start building um, the prototype and to form the team and uh, everything else. Um, so this idea of Nori had been in my head for a while. Um, uh, for many years actually. And it, 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 it evolved over time. Um, the more I thought about it and the more I spoke to other uh, people about it as well. So I talked to a lot of patients like myself, uh, about their challenges, about their needs and about how they would see a solution for this. And uh, yeah, all in all, after a few years, it, um, uh, it became what it is now. So. And how big are you right now? How many, how many people do you have? So we are with four. Um, it's, 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 it's basically the co-founding team. And, um, so we have been with four people since the beginning, basically. Of course, the group around us, uh, is, is, is much bigger. So we have a lot of people helping us out, a lot of people advising us from the medical sector, but also from a business perspective. Um, so, um, yeah, for, for, for the coming months, this is where we need to look at, like, how are we going to accept Expand the team and 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 on which areas. Uh, so we are looking into uh, research, for example, uh, scientific research about um, uh, how these type of tools are actually impacting um, uh, patients and 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 impacting hospital appointments, for example, because that's that's very important for us as well. We have a few areas that we want to make an impact, and um, help from uh, uh, professionals in that field is very very important. Uh, also for or development, for example, of course, we want to do a lot more that we are doing now. So we are looking into uh, deep learning experts, um, uh, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, the coming time will be exciting. So, so what have you managed to achieve so far in terms of uh, traction and uh, uh, whatever other metrics you have? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we have um, built a prototype that we did early tests with. Uh, based on that, we have built a version that um, um, we have conducted a virtual trial with in partnership with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation here in the Netherlands. What's a virtual trial? A uh, virtual trial is basically the same as a, uh, a normal trial or a clinical trial, um, but it's different. So it's digital, it's remote. Uh, so we have, a, we have a group of people of 85 patients, um, uh, across Europe, basically a few from the US as well. 
Um, and they uh, went through a six-week program with Nori. Uh, they had unlimited conversations, basically, or they had access to unlimited conversations in order to optimize their lifestyle and to decrease symptoms. And um, so that was a very important milestone for us because we have seen great interaction with Nori. That was, of course, uh, uh, one of the main challenges, like how would people interact with a chatbot on a daily basis? But they had very extensive conversations. They were very open as well and, um, and this is something that was uh, very surprising to us as well because we didn't anticipate that people would have such open conversations and share very personal uh, uh, things with Nori and basically people indicate that it was even easier for them to do it with Nori because other people that are close to them it's 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 hard to have such conversations all the time I know that from personal experience as well like at some point you just start dealing with stuff in your head uh, you start dealing with it on your own instead of uh, sharing it with people close to you because you feel like that you are complaining or you feel that you uh, put putting your problems into their hands and um, so people indicate that it's nice to talk to Nori that they can vent that that, that they can say anything that they um, uh, that they like so that's 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 huge for us so um, we are um, starting to move more and more into that direction like how can we add even more value there. So that was that was very successful. We are now uh, preparing a, a second trial and we are looking for a clinical environment to do that. Uh, so we are talking to hospitals, to clinics, um, uh, to researchers, uh, to form a team and to perform a, a clinical study around the value of chatbots in this in this um, uh, area of expertise, basically. So what sort of recommendations uh, would Nori be able to give to people? How medical are they? How deeply medical are they? Yeah, so 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 it's not a medical device. Um, so it's more like a lifestyle program. So we are uh, focused on being an extension to medical care. So medical care, especially in the Netherlands, but also in the UK, is very good. Uh, it's a very high quality, but we see that the pressure for people working in uh, the medical field is 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 becoming unbearable so um, basically for a person like me i go into the hospital twice a year i have a 15 minute appointment uh, i get blood tested i get i get some other tests and the doctor says well everything looks perfect uh see you in six months and i'm like well i deal with like extreme fatigue i have a lot of stress i have anxiety uh stuff like that and um it's basically yeah well we have a few nurses uh, that can help you out you can make an appointment but otherwise it's 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 just part of your condition and um so this is something where Nori can really help. So um, it's basically two-sided. You have a very uh, practical recommendations based on things like your diet. Uh, so we look at new studies, for example, where um, a certain nutrition um, ingredients come out as valuable for people with IBD and we um, uh, integrate that. So Nori recommends to try that and see if it works for you to give some relief. Maybe it can be a nice uh, addition to your current diet. Uh, we look at exercising, for example, helping people to form uh, very simple routines to um, uh, exercise on a daily basis. And um, uh, so we have a few of those very practical uh, things. And on the other hand, we have a more holistic approach uh, about acceptance of the disease, for example, about openness that I just um, uh, discussed, about mental strength. Um, uh, stuff like that. So it's very two-sided and um, uh, everything is impacting quality of life, basically.
So I was thinking about it uh, a little bit uh, uh, on my way here, and uh, yeah. the only point of sort of skepticism that I might have towards this is, could it actually lead to uh, another extreme then? Could it happen that the people, the patients, would only talk to Nori and stop going to an actual doctor, uh, which would lead to uh, certain things being overlooked? I don't think so. I, th- I, th- I think it's very clear from the beginning that Nori is in no way a um, um, replacement of any sort of medical care. While we this is this is something that we highlight from the beginning, and and and, and Nori uh, discusses this with every user in the first conversation as well. Um, also, when somebody indicates uh, certain levels of pain, for example, or other symptoms that should be uh, looked at by a professional, Nori uh, tells. A person to contact their doctor to discuss this because she cannot handle that. Of course, when you look at the more holistic approach, so when you think about uh, the psychological impact of a diagnosis, for example, that is something that Nori might be able to help with uh, on a level that people don't see the need to talk to their doctor about it. But that would be uh, a benefit, I, I, I think, for everyone because you see the workload that doctors have. They don't have any time to 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 discuss the psychological impact. So um, that is something that doctors are looking forward to 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 being taken off their um, uh, of their plate, basically. So you said that it's not a medical device, which means it does not need certification, right? No, it does not. Um, uh, it is something that we are looking at. Um, uh, we want to make sure that we follow um, um, current guidelines, basically. So we are looking at uh, CE um, uh, and we are looking at the FDA as well, because they are doing a lot with digital health uh lately so they have this um uh, new certification program that they are testing uh so we are talking to these people to see how can we make sure that we follow uh current guidelines and make sure that we uh provide something to people that is very safe and private basically so what do you think are the main issues that you're facing right now and also in two years since founding like i would normally if you have uh like a b2c startup of any kind mm. an app of any kind a chatbot of any kind yeah. by that time you would normally be able to release it uh, to the general public uh, no it's not the case for you obviously so is that an issue and uh, how do you deal with it yeah 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 so it's been uh so it's been so it's been a year and a half um um basically for the first year we have been combining it with other uh, uh projects so it was not a full-time um uh, startup from the beginning um and what we have these is to not follow uh, the B2C ride, but, uh, route, but more look at a B2B perspective and uh, really make this a part of the health system. So not uh, provide a very fast uh, uh, solution. And I've seen in, 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 in my um, years of working in digital health that people um, struggle with engagement, for example. So when you have this very uh, quick and dirty solution for for everyone, uh, people are eager to use it and, and and look at it and then just throw it away again. So we wanted to uh, build something that is very much part of the health system and the care pathway, basically, um, and something that is very uh, long lasting. So it's very impactful. And therefore, we decided to um, do extensive research, extensive, extensive testing, uh, bring in uh, health professionals, bring in researchers and make sure that um, this gets integrated into into the system. So we are looking at insurance companies, for example, making sure that we can work with these type of organizations to 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 bring this to the population on a long term basis, especially making this free for patients is very important for us as well. And I've seen that when you decide to charge 
patience, it's very difficult to keep engaging with them because um, when people pay for apps, for example, uh, it's very different than when you would pay for something else. Like for some reason, apps or, or, or whatever digital program is considered to be free or very cheap and offer a very, very big value in, in, in return. And that makes it very difficult to build a sustainable business. So we are looking at other routes for that reason. So what's, uh, what's your, what's your business model going to be anyway? So it depends a bit on our customer. So we are looking at several uh, groups of customers. So on one hand, you have the insurance companies, which is very interesting for us. You have hospitals um, looking at decreasing workload and you have pharmaceutical companies, for example, who are looking at beyond the pill uh, programs. So instead of just selling medication to, 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 to people they want to or they have to, um, actually, because of changing policies, um, they have to offer um, solutions that help uh, people to improve their quality of life next to medication. And this is something that we can help with. So we are um, uh, talking to pharmaceutical companies as well on running uh, pilot programs with them to offer um, the program with Nori Health for people with certain medications. And um, this will be one of our um, main goals. Um, we are looking to, to offer this as well, um, to patients directly. So if a patient, uh, goes to our website and, 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 and tells us like, okay, this is something I want to do now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to go to any other, um, uh, partners of you. I just want to pay for it right now. That would be possible, of course. So that will be possible at the end of the year. It's, a, it's, it's a bit of a combination of things. Right. So do you already have a plan of, uh, when, uh, the app will be available to anyone who wants to use it? Yes, yeah. So this summer we will run um, additional tests and uh, the second trial uh, at the end of the year or the last quarter uh, pilot programs will start. So we have a few um, uh, customers signed up uh, that will run pilots. And uh, after that, uh, it becomes publicly available as well. So that will probably uh, be either the end of the year or the beginning of next year. How is it going to be available? Is it a separate app or a Facebook chatbot or whatever else? No, it's going to be a, a separate web platform. So we did not uh, link it to WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever um, because people told us not to, basically. So we did a very extensive validation uh, program and people were just telling us like, okay, I want this to be very private, very secure. I want to be in charge of my own data. I don't want Facebook or Google or whatever uh, having my data. So we built our own um, uh, web application, basically. And um, so that would be where the program is. So you mentioned that uh, you have uh, already uh, quite an experience in working digital health. So what did you do before uh, uh, founding Nori? Yeah, so uh, I worked as a freelancer for quite some years um, in digital marketing. And uh, so I worked on the growth of uh, several uh, startups within this space. Most notably, I worked for uh, Skin Vision for a few years here in Amsterdam. So they are focused on the early detection of skin cancer and they build a self-care application that can help with that. Yeah, that's what I, um, that's what I did. And, uh, from this, uh, from this experience, uh, what's your take on, uh, the general ecosystem of health tech in Europe and in the Netherlands and where is it going? How is it changing? I think it's very, um, I think it's very positive, especially here in Europe and here in the Netherlands specifically as well. There's a lot happening. Uh, people are more and more open to it. I, I, I also see challenges. So for example, what we discussed about engagement of 
people that have to pay for certain apps or, 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 or certain programs. Uh, but you see a change now that you see, um, um, a few years ago, um, you saw a lot of reluctance from, uh, traditional healthcare, for example. So digital health or e-health was something that was yeah, considered um, um, uh, secondary, basically. And I think that had to do with the chances of digital health sort of replacing traditional care, which will not be happening, in my opinion. So I think you see now that the two are blending together, uh, which is very nice to see. So um, digital health, for example, is helping uh, self-care so it's helping avoiding unnecessary appointments in the hospital um, it's helping uh, home care for example uh, elderly care um, so I think there are there are a lot of very positive um, uh, changes happening and um, the two of them coming together is something that I envisioned uh, for a few years and it's nice to see that um, happening more and more now so um, I also feel that 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 uh, medical professionals or hospitals or insurance like everybody's much more open to it uh, a lot of good conversations and discussions uh, happening and uh, partnerships as well um, so yeah all in all very uh, very positive so you recently also raised uh, a funding round of uh, 670,000 uh, US dollars, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And yeah. uh, what do you think uh, in general about uh, the access to capital for digital health uh, startups? Because you also, you also were funded by the European Union, right? By Yes. Yes, we were. And um, so we raised from an angel now. And um, that was not a decision that was made lightly because there are so many options. Of course, you have... Uh, um, a lot of VCs as well that are focused on digital health and 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 they bring very valuable networks, uh, but they're looking at a bit more uh, later stage companies um, typically. So we had a lot of discussions, uh, we had a lot of meetings, and uh, still having meetings uh, basically with them. But I felt that it was too early for us to engage with them, and 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 there were too many restrictions and limitations coming from that. Too much pressure on the financial uh, return instead of just growing this company first and 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 really making an impact. Like uh, the team that we have here is very much focused on making an impact for patients. Like we want to help people. That is our primary driver. Financial return is uh, secondary, and 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 and. It, it is important because it helps to grow the business. So it has to happen, but it is not our primary focus. And I felt that a lot of people that we spoke to did have that as a primary focus. And, and, and that was what's making things difficult. I feel that it's becoming easier. Um, uh, I think a few years back, it was more uh, difficult, especially in the Netherlands. So we, we, we do have a lot more options now, a lot more specialized uh, firms as well. Uh, so you see a lot more uh, funds coming up that are focused on, on, on one sector or one vertical. So that is very valuable. So we are definitely engaging with them at a, at a later stage. So yeah. Perfect. Roland, thank you so much for uh, this conversation and uh, good thank luck you. with Nori Health and everything. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu episode number 119 and a great interview with uh, Roland Potter uh, from Nori Health. Uh, I think it's a really inspiring story and uh, a great uh, project. Now, let us talk about uh, the events. Uh, Natalie, what should we expect uh, here in Europe? What are we going to miss? <laughs> Yeah, so there's two events that really stand out for me that are taking place next week. And the first of those is called Emerge, which is happening in Minsk, Belarus on the 4th and 5th of June. 
And this event focuses on emerging technologies, building products, and growth. And I was very proud to be speaking at their inaugural event last year, which was a great time and really brought together a super international and exciting crowd. So I'm sorry to miss it this time, but I hope some of you will be able to make it there. Next, we head to Arctic 15, which is held on the 5th and 6th of June in Helsinki. Arctic 15 has a really great lineup this year, and they're super interesting in their approach of what they call, quote, de-unicornization. So they go on to say, and I'll quote here, we do not believe in unicorns or the rock star mentality of startup entrepreneurs. Instead, we want to see real businesses that solve real problems. At Arctic 15, we do not chase unicorns. We breed alpacas. Stay real. Talk about actionable businesses, end quote. So if you two are also in the business of breeding alpacas, you won't want to miss it. And that's taking place in Helsinki. So I'm really excited to hear what comes out of that event this year. Okay, it's really it, it's really interesting statement. Uh, I really like it <laughs> about alpacas. You know. And it really, I think, will hit um, a number of the right buttons for some people. Um, so if you're looking for more things to do this month, do check out the event section of our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, please let us know at the link in the show notes. And if you cond- if you click that link, you'll be able to input all of your events and they'll be featured on the Tech EU calendar. Now, I am unfortunately going to miss all the events uh, next week. And uh, I think the next event I will be going to is actually uh, Startup Extreme uh, that's uh, uh, later uh, next month, but at least I can recommend uh, something interesting uh, for you to read while you're on the way to your favorite conference. So my recommendation today is actually a pretty long story. Uh, it was run on Fortune and it's uh, titled Inside Google's Civil War. So a lot has been said and written on this topic uh, so far, uh, but this story really strikes me as a comprehensive and a well-structured overview of how the employee movement has grown at Google. And so it covers the most important milestones like the projects Maven and uh, Dragonfly that were uh, de facto killed because of the protests of the workers as well as the famous uh, walkout of the employees against the company's practices regarding sexual harassment reporting. Check the piece on Fortune uh, if you'd like a good overview of uh, what's going on uh, behind the scenes uh, at Google. Uh, Natalie, do you think there is a very big uh, difference between uh, these uh, sort of employee movements uh, in the US and in Europe, since you have witnessed both uh, landscapes uh, closer than I did? So what I think is interesting, especially about Google and the piece that you recommend, is that the movement started first in the U.S. and eventually came over to Europe. And I think there might be kind of two reasons for that, is that employee protections and kind of policies for um different sorts of leave policies, vacation policies in Europe are tend to be more generous than they are in the U.S. And In the U.S., you're dealing with a a number of other kind of factors that with states' rights and how company processes can be different based on where in the country you are. So I'm not sure if there is a specific movement, but what I think about is very special about Europe is we are talking about some of the themes that appear in the Google walkout. I I feel like they are more visible um, kind of in our day-to-day practices in the tech ecosystem. We're talking about things about diversity. We're talking about things about inclusion, where as in the U.S., it's harder to talk, I think, to harder to bring up that conversation. Um, and 
but I'm, I'm open to, to being proved wrong on that. It's, it's just something that, that I've noticed. Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess that, uh, that does make sense. Uh, I feel, I feel similar way. So what did you want to recommend today? So today I wanted to recommend a really great interview that was done by Steve O'Hare from TechCrunch, where he's interviewing uh, this new venture capital firm, which is called Future Positive Capital. So this is a new fund that started in Europe, and it is worth $57 million. And they aim to fund what they claim to be the world's most pressing problems. The fund is also interested in investing into more diverse founders and really trying to support founders and projects that are kind of outside the norm for traditional VC in Europe. And why it's an interesting piece is that O'Hare unpacks their investment thesis, and what results is a really enlightening interview that's also a critique about contemporary venture capital and how it's manifested in Europe. And it's clear that the future positive capital team has a perspective that they perceive is very different from what they consider mainstream European VC, which they liken at times to be somewhat acting as a herd mentality. At the end of the interview, they make this point, which I found very poignant, and I'll quote here, and it begins, capturing today's biggest opportunities requires going back to the original mission of the founding entrepreneurs of venture capital, to invest in visionaries imagining a wildly different future with an updated definition of value that reflects the changes restructuring our economy and societies. Our success will depend on staying true to this commitment, quote ends. So it'll be very interesting to see where it goes. And it's also very exciting to see yet another uh, VC firm coming in and supporting um, European founders. So have a look at that future positive capital. Okay, it's probably not the case yet, but I kind of feel that in a very near future, this, this is going to be the new mainstream. Like uh, going for these different founders and uh, different startups, it's it, it's kind of getting more and more uh, support, I suppose, in the VC circles. And that's kind of what uh, Steve here kind of brings out in in the interview is basically saying, "Well, you are speaking like this is really a different thing, but isn't this something that we're seeing a lot of actually?" And if you look at a lot of the investment theses of the new funds that have been opening up, they all seem to kind of pay point at different kind of aspects of, of this same argument. So that's why I think he does a really good job of like drawing that out. But everyone kind of wants to be different and disruptive and kind of make a point about these kind of contextual themes that are, are very contemporary. So it, it's very interesting. And I think it's also a very good lesson in, in doing an excellent interview and really getting some very illustrative um, engagement out of the piece. So um, I think it's it's a great one to to leave everyone with today. And if you're a deep tech founder that is working on a problem which you consider one of the world's most pressing, um, definitely check out Future Positive Capital. I like the name, though. I do like the name. Right. It's time to wrap it up for today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Uh, if you are not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. And if you are listening on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. This will help others find the show and mean the world to us. Tell a friend or colleague about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please 
please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at tech.eu and Natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks for having me again, Andri. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of the week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Thank you.